Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. This is Joe McCall. And this, I almost said this is REI in your car because <laughs> I've been recording a lot of my REI in your car podcast, but this is actually the real estate investing mastery podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for this episode because I've, I can't believe I've not interviewed Seth Williams yet before. And uh, so we've been trying to make our schedules connect. Seth's a super busy guy. And uh, finally, we made it happen. So he's on the podcast today and I'm excited to talk to him. And I think you guys are going to like what he's doing a lot. But I also want to tell you guys first, make sure you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to get all of our previous 520-something episodes. Can you believe that? I just recently changed changed my numbering format because I had different numbers for my REI and your car podcasts and different numbers for these interviews. So I've kind of combined them all now. And so we are starting to make it more official finally. After seven years of doing this podcast, we're going to have like a, a, a kind of a, a, an organized, more organized numbering system. So I think, I hope that you like that. So go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and get the show notes and download all of our previous episodes. It's crazy because if you go to iTunes right now, they only show the last 200 episodes. So there's over 300 episodes that you cannot find on iTunes. You have to go to Real Estate Investing Mastery to get... And also, you'll find there a couple free gifts that I'm going to be giving away. First is a Wholesaling 101 mind map. Created an entire mind map teaching you how to wholesale deals the fastest, easiest way possible without spending a ton of money on marketing, without, you know, you don't have to do have done deals before. You don't have to be a tech genius. It's just as simple as doing these few steps that we talk about. And in this mind map, we broke down the whole process and it's completely free. And we have videos of us walking through each step of the process. And we actually transcribed all those videos. So if you don't like to listen or if you don't like to watch, you just like to read, you can get all of our mind maps on that. So you can you can get that in the transcripts, I mean. You can get that at realestateinvestingmastery.com or if you wanted to go right to that mind map. If you just go to flipmindmap.com, you can get your hands on that. Or if you text the word FLIP to 313131. We'll send you a text message back with a link to get it. So if you're driving right now, after you pull over, <laughs> text the word FLIP to 313131 and you'll get your hands on our free wholesaling wholesaling mind map. Cool. So, oh yeah, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love the reviews. And yeah, if we keep on getting good reviews, we'll keep on doing the show because you guys have been doing that for so long. I appreciate it. Seth Williams, how are you, Seth? Hey, Joe. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Really good. Guys, if you don't know Seth, then I don't, you know, maybe you, you don't spend much time online. He's everywhere. He's got one of the best blogs on the interwebs for real estate investing. The quality of your content, Seth, always just blows me away. I'm like, how does this guy do it? You know, everything well, is like, sure. everything is excellent. Like, I was just listening to a, um, a sermon the other day while I was driving by Joel Olstein. I'm not a huge Joel Olstein fan, but I mean, he's guys doing something, right? He gets 5 billion people to <laughs> go to his church every Sunday, right? Yeah. But like he was talking about excellence, the spirit of excellence, right? And we should do everything with excellence. And uh, when I see what you do with your website, with your blog, with your products, with your 
videos. Man, it's just done with excellence. Good job. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, honestly the only reason I can do what I do is because I love it. Like it's just it's really, really fun. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that's just kind of how God wired me, I guess. That's just yeah. what I like to do. And, uh, you know, if I didn't love it, I probably couldn't do it that well. So, yeah, I've, I've been blessed. Well, it's a labor of love, you can tell. So look at this, guys. His website is retipster.com. R-E-Tipster.com, T-I-P-S-T-E-R. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. But if you go to his website, my goodness, it's amazing. He's got blog posts that he does. What do you do a blog post every week or so? Yeah, that's what I try to do. I, I don't always get, get to it, but uh, yeah, to the extent possible, I try to make it at least once a week. All right, so let me give you some of his featured posts here. Okay, guys, you ready? The Art of Building a Buyer's List, Million Dollar Postcard Templates That Work, Land Flipping Life Cycle, How to Make a Real Estate Website with WordPress Part 1, so I'm assuming you have Part 2s, yeah. Ultimate Guide to Getting Your County's Delinquent Tax List, Everything You Need to Know, I love that, Today's Top Real Estate Crowdfunding Websites, Why Should You Invest in Land, I love that, we're going to be talking a lot about that today, The Beginner's Guide to Buying Rental Properties, a Case Study, 50 Websites to Post Real Estate Listings for Free, How to Write Offers That Get Accepted, How Much Should You Offer for That Property, How to Write Real Estate Ads That Sell Properties Fast, 50 Creative Ways to Use Vacant Land, 101 Things Everyone Needs to Know About Real Estate Investing, How to Start Your Own Corporation or LLC, It's Easier Than You Think, How to Make an Offer in 30 Seconds, 11 or 10 Google Earth Hacks, Every Real Estate Professional Should Know, and Wholesaling Made Simple, A Comprehensive Guide to assigning contracts. Seth, how do you, that's just awesome. How do you do all of that? You know, it, uh, it took thousands and thousands of hours to do all that, honestly. It, uh, it just, I mean, some people watch TV in their spare time. Some people have other hobbies. For me, it's it's the blog. It's a uh, blog and then YouTube channel making videos. It's like, I would do it for free. You know, like it's just really, really fun to me. So I've spent a lot of time into really taking the areas of real estate investing that I struggled the most with things that I didn't understand or just have a hard time wrapping my mind around or executing. And I tried to put together the instructions that I wish I would have had back when I was starting, like just want to nail that problem. So anybody else who comes upon that obstacle or challenge or question, they can just sort of follow through my footsteps and do what I did. And hopefully it will make their lives easier as well. Nice. Nice. And you've got, um, well, again, guys, you just need to go to this website, retipster.com. Normally I ask people at the end, okay, you know, how can, how can people get a hold of you? But pause this podcast right now and come back to it later and listen to it. But go to his website, retipster.com. It's very professional, beautiful looking, and uh, lots of great stuff. And he is coming out with a podcast of your own, right, Seth? That's going to be uh, the Re yeah. Tipster podcast. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. It's, uh, as you figured out seven years ago, um, uh -huh. uh, podcasting is just, it's a huge audience. And there's a lot of people out there who don't necessarily have time or even the interest in going to a website and reading stuff. Like that's actually how my mind works too. Like I listen to a lot more podcasts than I do reading blogs just because I'm always on the go or working out or driving somewhere. And so anyway, I'm just trying to meet that need, you know, people who would rather listen I want to be there for them too. So this is my attempt at doing that. We'll see how it goes. Well, your videos look really professional too. And um, I see that you were at Pat Flynn's Power Up Podcasting Workshop. Yeah. Is that right? 
How was that? Yeah, that was, uh, um, you know, the podcasting thing, I, I'm sure I could have figured it out on my own, but I heard that he was putting on this live in-person workshop for people who wanted to start a podcast. And since that, that was me, I mean, that's the situation I was in and I've been following Pat. I mean, he's kind of like a big part of the reason why I started my blog back in right. the day. So he's right. just a huge role model. And I look up to him and I was like, man, I've got to learn from this guy. That would be so cool. So I went to San Diego and over a couple of days, got the, the lowdown on how his podcast works and how to do everything from A to Z. And he did a really good job teaching us how to do it. Yeah, I love it. And um, I just subscribed to your YouTube channel as well. Oh, thanks. Awesome. If you go to YouTube, guys, do a search for Seth Williams. You'll find him. Can they also search for Ari Tipster? Will they find yeah, it? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Really cool. Okay. So, Seth, tell us first about your background. What did you – you've been doing real estate for a long time. You left your job a couple years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. What were you doing before you were in real estate, in, interested, yeah. interested in real estate? Yeah, well, I, I first – I mean, the whole idea of real estate first entered my mind – it was back in like 2005. I was still in college at the time. And like so many other people that I've heard from, I was reading the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and just sort of having my eyes open to that whole new way of thinking that he presents. And one of the ways that he has built his financial freedom is through real estate. And it just kind of clicked. It just resonated and made sense. But of course, in the book, he doesn't really explain much of how you do it. He just sort of mentions it. So at that point, I started... You know, getting online, trying to find good deals on rental properties or houses to flip, just trying to find anything I could about how to make that work in real estate. And, you know, at the time, if you remember 05, 06, real estate prices were kind of insane, like everywhere, like it was just really, really a hot thing and sort of in a bubble. And all of the prices on everything I could find, like it just didn't make sense. Like I tried to crunch the numbers and see if properties would cash flow and just everybody was asking way too much. And it was really, really frustrating to me. I, I just wasted hundreds of hours visiting properties and uh, just, I didn't get it. And I knew that people were doing it. So like it was possible. I just wasn't figuring it out. Like I wasn't connecting the dots and seeing the light. And it was uh, a couple of years after that, I sort of like put it on hold or, you know, I, I just I stopped taking it seriously because I figured I just couldn't make it work. And uh, it was around 2008 when I, I heard about the whole concept of land investing. And I heard about it from Jack Bosch, and which I think you know Jack, don't you? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Saw yeah. him yesterday. Yeah, sweet. Awesome. I've actually never met him, but got a lot of respect for him. I, I took his uh, course back in 2008, and you know my, my eyes were just open when I, I saw the opportunity in land hmm. and realized what could be done with that. And just like for so many reasons – I mean, it's just a simpler type of property. Like you can buy it with the cash in your pocket without having to take out loans and property taxes are lower. And it just, I don't know, like the list goes on. There's so many reasons why it resonated and made sense. And um, it was the first time that my wife was actually able to get comfortable with it as well. She's very uh, risk averse and you know did not ever want to take out loans for anything. It just really scared her and, and rightfully so, honestly. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. And once you heard about, you know, you can buy properties really cheap and it's just dirt and there's nothing to it. She was like, okay, I, I could get behind that. So, you know, I basically just got my, uh, got a few delinquent tax lists, which was a challenge in and of itself, but I got those and 
started sending out postcards and within a couple months I was able to buy my first property, which was like a half acre lot for 331 bucks. And uh, I was able to sell a couple weeks later for 1900 bucks on Craigslist. Which state did and you target? When I did that and went through those motions, it was just like, whoa, like there's something here. Like this wasn't hard. It didn't cost me a fortune. I didn't have to put a lot of risk on the line. Like this was just really awesome. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I basically just uh, was thinking, okay, I just got to do this a lot more and or start going after bigger deals. And this could really be something. And so I basically just started doing that and kept sending out direct mail and trying other counties. And uh, my business just continued to evolve. And uh, a few years later, I was able to do the biggest deal I had ever done at the time, which was a 12 acre lot uh, up by Lake Huron, kind of not far from Mackinac Bridge. In, uh, in Michigan, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I'm, I'm in Michigan. For the first few years, I was kind of stuck in the mindset that I could only work in places where I could drive to, which is kind of a whole other story. But anyway, I, I was able to find a really good deal and I basically made like 40,000 bucks on this deal. And the interesting thing was another light bulb that went off through all this was that to this day, like as, as we speak here, I've never seen this property with my own eyes. Like I never went there. I never had to like do anything with it. And when I realized like I just made 40 grand from something without ever leaving my house to do it. Like there's no reason I need to stay in Michigan. I can do this wherever I want. If I just understand that market and how to use the resources that are required to get the information I need to buy and sell these properties. And so basically I just started pursuing other markets and found out a lot of ways to do things virtually. And honestly, like it keeps getting easier and easier every year because there's more and more data and tools and just resources online that didn't exist 10 years ago. So it's a, it's just a really fun business and it's a really good way to really do what a lot of house flippers do. It's just that this is with land and because it's land and because you can buy it for so cheap, in my opinion, is that the risk is just a lot less and it's just a much simpler type of property to work with. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of advantages to land. I want to ask you more about that. Yeah. So what, this was 2008, 2009, we started doing land, right? Yeah, that's right. And so have you been doing it full-time ever since or part-time or uh, talk yeah, about it? It has always been a part-time gig for me. Okay. I mean, I, I run my own business full-time. I've got a number of different things that I do, but land is, has always only been part of the overall equation. And that's, that's part of what I love about it is that I can kind of do it on my timetable and it doesn't hijack my life and, you know, require every waking moment for me to do it. So, and I think you totally can do it full time if you want to make it your main thing. For me, it just, it's never been that. Okay. When did you quit your job finally then? Uh, that was in early 2016. Okay, cool. So that was almost two years ago now. And you, you've been blogging for how long? Uh, I've been blogging since late 2012. So okay. it's been about five years now. Nice. And you were, um, are you still pretty active in bigger pockets in the community there? Yeah, I, I get in there every week. Probably not as active as I used to be. I used to spend tons of time in the forum and I used to write for them. Yeah. And I just, as life has gotten busier, I haven't had as much time. But yeah, I definitely stay in touch with that platform for sure. Because that's how I first heard about you was through bigger pockets. Oh, okay. And um, and then you had some, you talked about land. And so I kind of watched you and followed you along with that. That's pretty okay, amazing. Great. All right, so land. Let's 
maybe rewind a little bit. Have, do you invest in houses at all? Do you own any rental properties or do you flip rental properties? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I currently own two duplexes in my okay. town. I actually intended to own more by this point, but the prices are just really high right now. And I'm, I know there are ways to find better deals to direct mail and that kind of thing, but I just haven't, you know, put the time into doing that. So I've kind of been in like cash hoarding mode for the past couple of years now. Okay. And why do you like land better than houses? You know, I don't know that it's like, I don't know if I just come out and say I like it better, but there are, are many things that I think offer a lot of advantages that houses don't offer. Uh, mainly just the simplicity and I don't really have to deal with people all that much. Like yeah. I don't, I don't have to deal with contractors who say they're going to show up or do a terrible job, or I don't have to deal with tenants who say they're going to make their payments and then they don't. It's just, it's as simple as I want it to be. And it is possible to get into seller financing. And I have done that uh, quite a bit in my history. And I think when you start doing that, you'll sort of start to get into a little bit more hassle stuff just because you know, especially if you don't do credit checks, you better expect a number of your borrowers to just stop paying you for no reason. But the past several years, I haven't done a lot of seller financing. I've sort of chosen to sell just with cash for a lower price. And that's been working for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a simpler type of property and you can get it for really cheap. And because it's land, like because it's not the roof over somebody's head, there usually is not, you know, as much of an emotional connection or as much like importance placed on that property. So not, not everybody, but I think it's just more common for people to be willing to let the land go for a lower price. Uh, like a, a higher percentage of the people you reach out to will be okay with that. Um, there's a lot of people that inherit land or they, they bought it a long time ago and their plans just changed. A um, number of different potential reasons, but you know, when I'm buying land from somebody, I'm not like, you know, kicking a family out of their house or anything like that. It's just, yeah. it's just a parcel out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, they don't care about it. And, you know, I, if they don't want to sell for that. That's totally cool. We go our separate ways, but I never, never have to feel like I'm being a bad person when I, when I buy a property from somebody, it's just, you know, if they're apathetic and don't care enough to list it themselves for sale, then I give them an easy button and we both walk away happy. So, and it's also, uh, I think probably the bigger challenge that most people encounter, and it's certainly what I encountered in the land business, is the selling process. Because it's some some lots will sell very very quick, and some of them just take a little bit more work to move. But there there's a lot of ways to improve those odds, yeah. like getting great pictures of the property, putting together a great listing, getting it out in front of a lot more eyeballs through a number of different methods. And ultimately, the nice thing is. I'm pretty conservative with the offers that I make. Like I almost never will offer more than 20% of what I think a property is worth and usually closer to 10%. So like by the nature of that, I have this massive built-in profit margin. And even if I end up being wrong about something, like if I think a property is worth more than it actually is, or if it ends up being harder to sell, I have a huge margin of error built in where I can lower the price or I can offer terms and, you know, I have no debt on it. So there's no payments I make. So there's really no urgency from a financial standpoint. And it just makes it a lot lower stress of a situation. Like I don't, it just, it's, it doesn't take nearly as much anxiety <laughs> as some houses or other types of properties would 
where it's like you're you're working against the clock and you have to make this happen now or you're start, yeah. going to start going in the red. Like land just doesn't work that way when you make offers as low as, as we do. So. And there's not as much competition either. So you, it's not like you're under the gun racing against the clock, yeah. racing against five other investors making an offer at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there used to be a time when I would say there is literally zero competition. I don't think I'd say that anymore today. I think it's in some markets, I actually have encountered situations where, oh, yeah, I just got a similar offer from somebody else like a week ago. So I have, like, for the first time ever this past year, I encountered that. But that was uh, in the southwest part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, that's, like, really, like, everybody chooses to work there, which I've never fully understood why. But That's because of the, the main gurus who teach land investing. That's where they are, right? And uh, so people I, think that's my only guess. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. That's, I have to imagine that's why. Maybe there's some other reason I'm just not privy to. But um, so anyway, I've experienced that there a little bit, yeah. but pretty much everywhere outside of that little pocket, or I guess it's a big pocket, I've never encountered a situation where I was fighting against another investor for a deal. Like when I made the offer, like I'm the only person that that seller has, uh, yeah. at least in their minds, because nobody else has been actively presenting offers to them. All right. So let's talk about what, maybe we can re rewind a little bit and talk about the steps involved. Is that all right? Sure. So first you get a list of landowners, vacant landowners to send mail to, right? What are some of the, what type of land are you looking for? Seth? Well, it kind of depends on what a person wants. Me personally, I sort of started to learn after my first few years of doing it that, uh, like, particularly once I started doing bigger deals, the little deals take, for the most part, just as much work as the big deals do. And I think it's it's actually very helpful and good to get lots of experience with those little deals, especially when you start now, because if you do make mistakes, they're on a much smaller scale. But anyway, they generally take about the same amount of work. So these days, I try to pursue the bigger deals like larger acreage or just higher value based on the county where I'm working. So I kind of figure out you know, what properties are worth more. And when I say more, I mean you know, anywhere from twenty to 100000 And I basically figure out the acreage and narrow it down to only those properties based on the acreage. Uh, and you can do this. If the county delinquent tax list provides the acreage, you can do it that way. Or if you use a service like Agent Pro 24-7 or List Source or RealQuest Pro or anything like that, those filters obviously give you a lot of flexibility to nail, you know, narrow down the sizes of properties that you want and the types of properties and locations and all this stuff. So I basically just filter out a list that fits the criteria that I want and I start pursuing those. So it doesn't have to be tax delinquent necessarily. You just mail to all uh, no, the landowners. Yeah. I think if you do the delinquent tax list, you will generally encounter a higher response rate and a higher level of motivation to sell because people have like an active known issue. And when you have delinquent taxes, like it's a, it's a pretty big red flag that for one reason or another, this person either doesn't want the property or they don't care about it or they can't afford it. For one reason or another, they have a reason to sell and sell for cheap. Whereas if you send to more of a general list of landowners, some of those people will definitely be there. But as a percentage base, 
there will be fewer of them that have like a known issue or reason to sell. So, right. Well, and that's just something to keep. You also have um, more competition with the tax delinquent lists when you're mailing to them. You know, I I don't know. I'm maybe I'm not convinced of that though. The the only time I've ever encountered competition was when I used a uh, list that I pulled from a data service. And uh, the reason that, have you seen something different in your experience or? Well, I no, because I've never mailed to tax delinquent lists. I just know that when all the gurus teach it, that's what they teach. You know, the first thing is go after the tax delinquent list. That's because that's the smallest yeah. list and they're most likely to be motivated, just like you said. Yeah. They're also a lot harder to get in yeah. most counties. Yeah. Right. Whereas a list from data service is very, very easy to get. All um, right. So, so I, there's, there's, uh, can I ask you what what states that you're going after? Like, and then, and I have some follow up questions to that. Yeah, I mean, states that I have worked in the past would be like Michigan, Alabama, California, New Mexico, let's see, Florida, uh, Georgia. So I've kind of worked all over the place, and part of the reason for that is another big source of leads that I get is through my buying website. Like, people will just randomly find my website and submit their property information requesting an offer from me. And that was kind of an intentional thing back in about 2011 or so. Um, I actually hired some SEO work, search engine optimization, which worked a lot better at the time. It doesn't work as as well anymore, but I wanted to get a lot of organic traffic and it worked. And I, you know, I get a lot of free leads to this day that come in from all over the place. So to some extent, it's hard to control where those come from. But when it comes to like direct mail, a lot of that work has been in Michigan, a uh, little bit in California, uh, New Mexico, and places like that. Tell me about the difference between some of the, like Michigan and the Southwest areas. Because mm-hmm. you see a lot of land investors focusing on Colorado, Arizona, maybe California, but mm-hmm. there's obviously tons of land in the Midwest. Why? Mm-hmm. What what what, t- what is the difference between your marketing for in Michigan for land in Michigan than maybe uh, in a, in another state like Arizona? Yeah, you know, just from the marketing standpoint, or like from an overall standpoint, like types of properties and due diligence issues and things like that. Well, more along the lines of, um, you know, is is there less emotional attachment to somebody who owns a land in Arizona? than somebody who owns land in Michigan. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of speculators in the past have bought land in places like mm-hmm. Arizona. But people, in my opinion, I might, I, might, I might be wrong, people who own land in Michigan or Missouri, where I am, might have more emotional attachment to the land because it's been in the family for a long time or you know used to be a farm or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, think to some extent that's – Kind of a generalization, but I think there is something there to what you're saying. Um, like land that's sort of out in the, the desert. I've kind of always been confused as to why anybody buys that, to be honest with you. Because <laughs> right, it's like, exactly. what are you going to do with that? You know, like it's, there's no water, like there's nothing around, there's no trees. There's, I just, I don't get it. But yeah, there's a lot of people who do that. And I think there's a lot more like large acreage out west for really cheap. And a lot of people like the idea of just owning lots of land somewhere, even if they have no logical, practical use for it. Just that idea is appealing to them. Yeah. And you can do a lot of that out west because land is cheaper in a lot of areas. Not in California necessarily, but 
you know, out in the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico and places like that. It's not hard to come by that stuff. You know, it's also, I'm, the jury's still out of this on this, but I, I think it might be a little easier to quantify land value based on acreage out West as well, because out in like some of the more, you know, like I guess you'd say East of the Mississippi or the Midwest or East coast, you know, like I've come across lots in New Jersey that were like a third of an acre worth half a million dollars. And that had a lot to do with its location and, you know, what was around it. And it's just a little bit harder to take it by acre and apply that in a realistic way to all properties in a given county. It can still work, I think, but it's not quite as cut and dry as, you know, a county in the, in the southwest that there's just nothing there. You're still targeting counties that are away from the big city, right? You don't even want to be in the path of progress do you rather be the further out the better because you can buy them cheaper, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the few times when I have made offers on uh, lots in a big city was generally when they came in through my website because like, like I wouldn't actively pursue those through a direct mail campaign. But if the opportunity presents itself, I'll look at that and make a decision based on what I see. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, it has happened, but it's not because I'm like going out of my way to pursue that. It's because it kind of fell on my doorstep. But yeah, it's uh, like, for example, I, I just uh, did a direct mail campaign in a county in Michigan. And the, pro- man, the properties by acre are worth way, way, way more than places I've worked in the Southwest. I mean, it's just a completely different ball game in terms of value. Yeah. And I think it's because in places like Michigan, it's like you can do stuff with the land. You can build, you can farm, there's woods, you can hunt. There's just all kinds of different uses. And, you know, they're, they're just, uh, I don't know if they're necessarily closer to cities. Maybe they are, but I don't know. It just seems like it's, it's more appealing for a lot of reasons to have land there just because of its usability. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I know because um, I, I I live in Missouri and yeah. I like to hunt. I'm not a big hunter, but there are some really good counties out here that have not a lot of agriculture because there's just they're more hilly. There's more trees and stuff like that. And uh, mm-hmm. I've thought about for a long time targeting those counties that have I don't I don't know what size yet. That's one of the other questions I wanted to ask you. But like. Target them and then sell them to hunters. And, and a lot of people are wondering, mm-hmm. as they're listening to this, thinking, why do people buy land anyway? Well, a lot of the land that we've sold in the past have been to people who just – maybe they're, they're, they're campers. They mm-hmm. just want to get off the grid. They When the zombie apocalypse happens, they want a place where they can hide. Yeah. Uh, they want a place where yeah, they can hide <laughs> when, when they hide their guns. Right. They want to hide their guns. They want to. They want to grow their pot. They want to. Uh, there's so many different reasons. Just ride their four wheelers, or maybe eventually someday mm-hmm. build a house or a log cabin or something. So there's always reasons, and and you'll be shocked. But the coolest thing about this, what you're saying, Seth, is you buy them so conservatively that uh, you're going to sell them. You're buying them at ten, twenty cents on the dollar. You'll find somebody, even if it's even if you just break even, or if you don't sell yeah. it, you don't lose that much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was. Uh... There was one time where I had bought a property that I basically I bought it and I was I bought the wrong one. Like the one that I thought I was buying was I had my directions all messed up and I was looking at my map. So I bought a property that was uh, like a tiny little triangle thing next to a highway. 
and I paid like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks for it. And that, that was the one and only time ever that I have, I guess you could say lost money because what I ended up doing, I didn't have to do this. If I really was intentional about it, I'm sure I could have sold it for what I paid for it, but I just didn't really want to deal with it. (laughs) And I just, you know, if I ever did sell it, it would just kind of be a break even thing anyway. And it was only a couple hundred bucks for me. So what I did was I just contacted the neighbor that lived next to it and just said, Hey, you want to add this to your yard for free? No strings attached. I'll just give it to you if you want. Wow. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I just needed it to him. And, but that, that was the only time ever. And it wasn't even like, I didn't have to, I just sort of chose to, but it's, it's just really, I mean, if you're making the right kinds of offers and if you're even remotely accurate in the way that you're figuring out the value of a property, which is actually harder to do than it sounds, but if you're even remotely close on that, it's really, really hard to lose money. I'd say the worst that can happen is it might take a little longer than you expect to sell it. And even that can be remedied to some extent. So it's just a very low risk kind of business, which is part of what I love about it. Okay, good. So what's your philosophy on sending an offer or sending a generic letter? Hey, call me. I want to buy your land. Yeah, great question. I, I, uh, I've done a lot of experimentation on that this year in particular, and I kind of gone back and forth on my opinion on it. But I think, I mean, when I, when I was getting started, I, I was doing just sending out a postcard to people saying, Hey, I see you own land. I'm looking to buy land. Give me a call. We can talk. And then they would call and we go back and forth and you know, that works. And I think the nice thing about that is it gives you a chance to talk to a person and find out where they're coming from. And ultimately, if you can build a rapport, if you have the time to do that, most importantly, it could potentially result in you getting more accepted offers and getting more deals. So I think if you've got more time and less money, that approach potentially makes more sense because you can reach more people through direct mail because it's cheaper and you can have these conversations and potentially get more deals. However, if you're somebody like myself, where I'm at a point now where I have way less time and more funds to work with than I did when I was getting started, a lot more, I'm willing to spend more on direct mail and spend less of my time. And blind offers, I think, makes a lot more sense from that standpoint because there is, I don't want to say no back and forth because there usually is some conversation or questions to be answered or something before the deal gets closed. But you avoid things like, you know, spending 30 minutes on the phone with somebody, getting all their property details, doing all this property research, making an offer, and then they say no. You, you kind of get to know a lot faster because from the very first point of contact, they know exactly what your number is and they know what you're doing. And if they, you know, don't want to work with you, if they hate you, (laughs) they'll just tell you that you can be done. Whereas if you're doing the postcard thing and you want to have this big conversation, it just takes a ton of time. So if you're somebody like me where you've got more money to spend and if you'd rather, it's also, I think a little bit nicer because when I've been doing blind offers, I've not been using the delinquent tax list. Instead I've been using agent pro 24 seven to get my lists. So I, I think, you know, the mail costs more, the response rate is a little bit lower, but ultimately I've found so far anyway, when I've got my offer prices right, like when I've done that work correctly, the actual acceptance rate at the end of the day is not that much far off from doing the postcard method. And given that that's what I'm ultimately after, 
that's why I think, you know, blind offer is, is a, a very solid way to do it. And that's, uh, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying it and that's probably how I'll keep doing it for the time being. Yeah. Uh, just because of my situation and, you know, more money, less time. It just kind of fits my lifestyle. You did a, a blog post on it once, I think, and you talked about um, yeah. the difference and you, you, you give a real good analogy. It's, you're not necessarily saving a lot of time that you might think you would be because mm-hmm. you, you're not fielding a bunch of calls up front, but you're dealing with more calls in the back end. Does that make sense? Like you're spending mm-hmm. more time on the fewer calls that you get on the back end. I've talked to Jack Bosch yeah. about this many times. And because uh, oh, okay. Jack Bosch is more of the philosophy that you should just send generic letters. Like, hey, I want to buy mm-hmm. your land. You'll get a lot of calls. They go to Pat Live or some kind of answering service. And then you... Then you do your due diligence and you filter, you know, you look at it and you make offers. And the way they do it, mm-hmm. they just once a week, that's when they, they collect all of the leads that they've got and they send their offers one day on one day mm-hmm. of every week. And you think that's crazy. Like you can't do that. It's waiting too long. Well, that's the cool thing about land. You're not in that big of a hurry. And so I do mm-hmm. see that and I've not tested that yet, but that's what we do. We just send blind offers. Now, Seth, uh, how do you calculate or how do you determine the value when you're getting ready to just send blind offers? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple different ways to do it. And I've even done like a hybrid approach where when I'm going through my Excel spreadsheet, I'll create one column that does a calculation based on the assessed value, like what the county thinks the market value is, which I, I generally don't put a lot of stock in that. But I think if you have no other information, it, it can work. Like it's better than nothing. And then I have another column where I make an offer based on the acreage. And, you know, when it comes to figuring out value based on acreage, it's kind of a similar approach to what the guys at Land Academy do, where they basically you or what I do is I I find properties that are similar to the, the acreage range that I'm going for. And luckily on Zillow, probably every website now, you can very easily filter, okay, I want to see only properties that are between you know, five and 10 acres or 10 to 20 acres or whatever it is. And you can basically just only look at the ones that are similar to what you're trying to target and just look at what people are asking for them. And the funny thing is like almost, almost always, I will see a few properties that are just like way, way, way cheaper than everything else. And a few that are way more expensive. So I kind of take those and I'm like, okay, those are the outliers. So I'm just going to sort of throw those out. And I take the rest of them and sort of come up with an average based on what I'm seeing. And in the counties I've worked and done this, it's usually not hard to sort of narrow down on a pretty small range that properties are worth, at least in the eyes of the sellers who are listing them. And again, that's, you know, I wouldn't call that market value necessarily, but that does show you what your competition is. And, you know, when, when you want to list your properties, these are the yeah. ones you have to look better than. And so I kind of use that as the basis. And then when I'm putting together my offers, it's usually 10 to 15% of what that is. So it's, you know, way, way, way below that. And, um, you know, I've had experiences where it worked out great and other experiences where it totally flopped. And usually when it flops, like the first time I ever did this, I got no acceptances. And I was like, you know, on one hand, I could have said, ah, this doesn't work, forget it. Yeah. But instead, I was like, okay, well, something wasn't didn't go right here. I either offered too little, or I'm going after the wrong, you know, types of properties here, or this isn't the right county to do this. And so I basically just took a number of different variables and adjusted them in the direction that would increase my odds of getting acceptances. 
And the second time through, it worked really well. I got like eight acceptances. So hmm. it's just a matter of, uh, I think the first time you do this, like in a new market, especially when you're just getting started, just take every campaign as a huge learning experience. Like there is a major, major lesson in every campaign, bigger than any education you can pay for <laughs> because you're doing this yourself and you're seeing the results firsthand. And it's, it's just it's teaching you, okay, what does and doesn't work. And once you know what works, it's pretty easy to like replicate that again and again in the future when you want to go back to those counties or those surrounding areas. Yeah, you, you have to um, definitely study this. And you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to have to go back and mm -hmm. fix it. I was just looking at Landwatch, and I, I've mm -hmm. been wanting to do marketing in Missouri for a long time, but I've been hesitant mm -hmm. to do that. And I just pulled a list uh -huh. from ListSource of one county close to where I am. But, you know, from that county, it would take an hour and a half to get to St. Louis. And uh, mm -hmm. I did pulled a list of five to 20 acres. And I'm using mm -hmm. ListSource now. And I did – I s just selected the uh, absentee owners. And so I didn't go through and say, show me the ones that have – you know, like you can do county property type. Mm -hmm. And select any of the 50, 100 of them that say have the word vacant in them, right? So, so I'm just wondering a couple questions here. Number one, I, I use ListSource. I, get, I can get leads for three cents an, a lead. Have you ever mm -hmm. done that where you could just pull property by acreage and then for the – you make it an absentee-owned property? So generally that would mean it, was, it would be vacant land. Have you ever done that? Yeah, that's uh... – you know, actually, my, my one issue with ListSource, I've used them before. I don't think I paid three cents a lead, though. Is that, is that cheaper than normal? Yeah, it is. I, I, is got, a, I got a special deal. <laughs> I got a special deal from somebody <laughs> in the inside. But, nice. yeah, it is pretty cheap. And the, the problem with ListSource that I don't like is uh, they don't let you select zero for a category. In other mm. words, like I can't go in and say the improved value is zero. Yes, now I yeah, I, I talked to somebody I talked to somebody at CoreLogic about this and they said why do you do that and they said well we don't do that because that's a premium feature in RealQuest Professional oh, so they they want you to subscribe to RealQuest Professional so you can get that kind of filtering out so it's intentional that they didn't mm -hmm. do that in ListSource so but what I yeah, what I'm playing with is like just you know at three cents a lead I can download a bunch of them right. And then after mm -hmm. take the exported data and filter it even more from that exported data. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The, the other issue that I've had with ListSource, and I don't know if it's still like this. I'm actually getting on this site right now just to see. But with uh, RealQuest Pro and with Agent Pro 24-7, they give you the option to go county by county and see the date which the data was last generated from mm -hmm. the county. Yeah. And that's actually like super important because especially when you get into like states that are, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, like North Dakota, for example, there's a lot of counties that have no data at all. Or if the data is there, it hasn't been updated in like five years. So it's basically useless, in my opinion, because the information is so old. If I send direct mail out to that, a lot of those are coming right back to me. And it's kind of crucial to be able to see how current that data is. And there's definitely been time. Like, it's actually the first thing I do before I ever pull a list in Agent Pro is I see, okay, when was the data last updated? Because if it's been more than a few months, I'm like, well, 
I'm not going to work this county then because that's too old. So that's a, that's kind of an issue, I think, with list source. And I think in most people that use list source are probably working in you know more highly populated counties where the data is very current anyway. So it's usually not going to be an issue for like 98% of the users. But when you're doing land like we are, you know, you're working in very rural, remote areas, it's pretty important to know that. And huh. they don't tell you that. At least I, I haven't been able to find any function where you can get that information. Now with Agent Twenty Agent Pro twenty four seven, I've never used this. I know I've heard of people that have. Yeah. What I, I'm looking here, there's two packages, gold and platinum, and you can get five hundred <laughs> or two thousand records, different pricing. Which service do you are you at gold or platinum? And, and is two thousand a month good enough for you? And does that build up? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they actually just jacked their prices up quite a bit earlier this year, which was unfortunate. But it's still still cheaper than a lot of options out there, believe it or not. And if you use uh, if you sign up with partner ID CFGRSH, and I'm I don't get paid for that. That's just a partner ID I know about. It will give you ten percent off every single option there. Hmm. So that code again is CFGRFH. C-F-G-R-S as in Sam, H as in oh, cool. the letter H. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the one that I am currently using, it actually isn't even available on here anymore. It was called the bronze package, but it was, it was similar to the gold with a thousand records. So that's what I use. I think if you're doing more direct mail, 2000 can work for most people. And if you go over that, they basically just – you have to pay a la carte for it. So you just pay a little bit more if you if you need more. But, okay. yes, Agent Pro – I mean, I'm not going to tell you it's perfect. It's got its little quirks and issues. Like, for example, in some states, they'll have a, um, a tax distress option where you can pick it if you want only tax delinquent properties. But I'll tell you, in my experience, that works pretty well in places like California, but in most states – I would not trust that particular item. Like, just don't even use it because it's probably going to give you something that's wrong. But most of their other data is pretty solid. And the uh, another nice thing in terms of like choosing absentee owners, they even give you the option of choosing, I want only out-of-state owners. So like not just absentee, but specifically people that don't live in the state. And there's just, I mean, it's actually, I mean, ultimately it's, it's very similar to RealQuest Pro. It's just pulling it from a different database. It's owned by Black Knight Financial Services. So it's it's just a different database, but they do a lot of the same stuff. And in terms of like which one is better, I think it kind of depends on the county because I, I've i looked in both. Uh, I actually did a huge blog post about this a couple of years ago. I looked at, at both, both systems. And in some counties, Agent Pro is more current. In other counties, uh, CoreLogic is more current. So... It just sort of depends on which area you're trying to work in and how current those databases are. But the nice thing is that with either one, you can see. Like, you don't have to be flying, flying blind and not really know how, how new or how recent the data has been pulled. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's walk through an example of what you would do here. I'm looking, at, uh, I'm looking at this one particular county in Missouri. It's called Jefferson County. And I went to mm-hmm. landwatch.com. And I said, mm-hmm. give me a list of all of the land for sale, currently actively listed for sale in Jefferson County. And I selected land only, so there's no houses on there. 
Hopefully that's right. Five to 10 acres. And I sorted it from low to high. Okay. And mm -hmm. just looking at the numbers, I'm not doing anything. I've got calculation. The average five acres is about $14,500. Just eyeballing it. Okay. So the average five acre lot is $14,500. If you take a calculator and you do 14,500 divided by five, that's an average of $2,900 per acre. Mm -hmm. Now that's for, let's just say that's for five to seven acres. Do you do that kind of average for every different grouping of property? So would you do different averages for like 10 to 15 acres and then 15 to 20 acres? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, in terms of like the quick way to get there, yes, that's essentially what I do. And, you know, knowing that per acre is 2,900 bucks, I'd probably offer like 300 bucks or no, I'm sorry. Yeah. 10% of that is I think 290. I'm going to round it up to 300 bucks an acre or something like that. And I think the tricky thing about it though, is for example, in the County where I just sent a direct mail campaign, Properties that are five acres in size based on a per acre basis are worth a lot more than properties that are 10 acres in size. Like those are worth, you know, about a thousand bucks per acre less just really? because I don't really know why. I guess just having more acres in one lot. I don't know if it's used for something different or what the deal is, but that was just what I found. So you sort of have to like keep that in mind as well. And something else you can do what I mentioned earlier when I take assessed values and make a column for that is basically, you know, you have one column that's calculating based on the per acre value, another column that's calculating it based on the assessed value. You can create a third column that creates this condition where it takes the highest or the lowest of whichever one comes out higher in those two columns. So basically if you want to increase your odds, you can just kind of, use that. Or if you want to make sure you're getting the lowest price, however it's calculated, you could do the lower. Of either well, how, how are you getting the assessed value of these lots? Yeah, well, I, I don't know how list source works. It's probably a really similar thing. Honestly, no, but, but I, well, uh, with I, so, but what I'm talking about actually is the, um, I, I'm looking for comps. So I'm looking at the mm -hmm. active listed listings right now. And uh, so I thought you said you got the appraised value of the active listings. That's not what you're saying. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's uh, that's not what I meant. The uh, when when you pull your list from uh, the data service, there's a column for market value and assessed value for every wow. single property. Yeah. So that's, this is basically for whatever reason the county has come to their conclusion and their infinite wisdom what every property is worth, which is not very reliable. I mean, I I try not to pay that much attention to it, uh, but there's some some cases where like there might not be any comparable properties for sale or the ones that are for sale are just not a good representation to work with. Like it's just not enough information. Like maybe there's three that are similar to the ones you're looking for and it's just not enough data to work with. So if you sort of have a big question mark like that, the assessed value can kind of be like your backup strategy. I so anyway, I don't usually default to that, but when I have nothing else to work with or when I just want to add another measurement into the equation, that's something you can use as well. And it's, I'm not getting them from the listings. I'm getting them from the actual uh, list that I pulled from the data service. Okay. I see. I'm, I'm looking here at Zillow and believe mm -hmm. it or not, I'm shocked. There are, I looked just for lots in this one County and in Zillow, Zillow has 567 listings 
of lots. I'm really shocked that it's that many. But the uh, if I could go to lot size, it doesn't oh, custom size. Wow, this is amazing. I've never really looked at Zillow for uh, land listings much before. Yeah, they've actually got a cool uh, lasso tool where you can yeah you can like draw a line around whichever neighborhoods or whatever areas you want to look in. So say if you if there's like a, a city nearby or something and you want to exclude that area, you could do that really easily. I wonder if Zillow is pulling from the MLS from these for these properties, or are they? Uh, I think they get agents? it from. I think they get it from a number of different sources. Like I think uh, these big data services like CoreLogic. I think that's probably where they get some of it. Probably the MLS. I know people like I always post my uh, listings for sale by owner on Zillow, and that's something that MLS is not going to pick up. So it's getting that line of data as well. Um, it's pretty. I mean, from what I can tell, it seems like a pretty comprehensive system just in terms of pulling in lots of different information. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, this is really good. I'm looking at list source, and I, I'm, I'm going to make sure when I'm exporting these leads, I'm going to get assessed value. Oh, but you know what? I don't see that as an option here. Oh, I see improved. I can bring. I can have improved numbers. Added in. Now, what when we talk about improve, that means like there's been improvements on the property. So if there's zero improvements, that means it's not been exactly right. Right. Yeah, that's that's really doesn't really determine the property's overall worth. It's just if anything is built on it. Yeah, this is cool. Okay, so now you've got an average, Seth. You've got you're going to offer five hundred dollars an acre. Let's say, mm-hmm. what do you send to the sellers? Then is it a formal package with a formal contract or is it just a letter of intent like maybe a cover letter or something well what i'm doing uh i mean there's a couple different ways to do it if i've done the postcard approach i've got a cover letter and a a purchase agreement that i send to them just kind of explaining what it is and then giving it to them the blind offer it's pretty similar it's just a different template it's the purchase agreement is a little bit whittled down so there's not quite as much information on it and the uh, cover letter explains it more from the perspective of like, hey, we don't know each other. You don't know me, but I found your property and I'm sending you an offer. So it just kind of lays it out a little bit different. But in either case, it's yeah, two pages in an envelope and just kind of give it to them that way. So, OK, cool. I've seen some guys do just one page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one way. One page uh, with the offer like there and they sign it. Yeah, Go ahead. It's I mean, it's. I don't know that anybody knows this definitively, but you know, with one page, it probably not explain things quite as well in terms of who you are and what you're doing. And I don't know what that one page says. Maybe there's a way to get it all on one sheet, but I'm sure it certainly saves money on direct mail. And uh, I think I think if you're if you're framing it just right, there is something to be said for the less is more approach in terms of the less you say and the simpler you are about it, the less likely you are to confuse people. If you're just kind of right to the point and as long as you kind of explain where you're coming from and what you're doing. Yeah. Well, okay, cool. Now you send a letter. Uh, do you have, do you track your numbers, Seth? Cause you're offering generally pretty much lower than most people do. Mm-hmm. Do you have your numbers? Like how many letters on average do you get one accepted? Yeah. I, uh, I don't remember what I've seen lately. Usually my uh, response rate for 
Well, are we talking about um, blind offers here? Yes, yes, blind offers. My response rate is usually there's a percentage base. It's usually well under five percent, but the actual acceptance rate, like the people who are willing to, you know, say yes, let's do this, is usually anywhere from like half percent to one percent, like best case scenario. And I always sort of thought that when people responded, it would just be they just sign it and send it back to me. But yeah. that, that's not usually what happens. That sometimes it does, but usually there's a callback or an email or some kind of back and forth, either trying to negotiate something different or ask me who I am and what I'm doing. Yeah. Which I mean, to be fair, that's understandable. I mean, if somebody was just reaching out to me in the middle of nowhere, I'd probably want to know a little bit more about them. I mean, I try to include as much information as I can, like my website and I got a voicemail message that explains a lot of stuff too. But um you know, it's, it's usually not as cut and dry as you might think it is. There's some kind of hand-holding that has to happen. And you get a lot of angry calls too, right? Yeah, it, it sort of depends on, and the short answer is yes, but it varies a lot based on how how appropriately I price my offers. Um, there are sometimes, like when I've worked out in the Southwest, there's lots of land that people just don't care about. And it just, just doesn't really matter to them whether they're willing to sell or not. Like they just don't get that offended by it. Some people do, but a lot of people don't. Whereas when I work, when I've worked in Michigan doing this, man, I'm just, I was amazed at the venomous hatred I got back from people. Like, yeah. like even though I'm like, I'm way off and you don't want to do it. Like, that's fine. I get it. Like, I'm not forcing you to do anything, but I mean, these people hated me. I mean, oh, it yeah. was like bad. Like I, I would like if somebody, you know, say somebody came up to me and offered me 50 bucks for my car or something like that. Like I would just laugh at them and walk away. I wouldn't like get so angry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These people were just really upset about it. For some well, you got to have thick skin and, and you got to ask yourself, are you willing to get some hate yeah. to make five grand? On yeah. one of these places. Honestly, it's part of the deal, I think, when you're when you're offering crazy low prices like this, you just have to plan for that. And if you can let it roll off your shoulders and find a humorous way to look at it, that it's totally manageable. You just have to kind of get in the right headspace. All right. So here's your based on your numbers, you send out a thousand offers, a thousand letters. If you get half of one response acceptance rate, mm-hmm. that's about five contracts. Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's what I've had. And again, that's this is when I've done it right. If I've screwed up my offer prices or something, that's not going to happen. But yeah, but yeah, um, that's about where we're at. Is, that's about where we're at too. It's it's one offer out of every one to two hundred letters, mm-hmm. which is insane when you compare that to houses. That's like really really good. And yeah. the reason I'm so excited about this, I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. My son, who is 14 now, who's had zero interest in real estate. Recently, I showed him a picture of a this distinguished-looking gentleman, executive-level type, leaning against his beautiful $500,000 sports car or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And the caption on the picture said, my boss just bought a brand-new sports car. And he told me, if I work really hard and I put in a bunch of overtime and I, and I bring in a bunch of new profit to the bottom line, he will buy – himself another car. <laughs> I, thought, I, love I love that. And I showed that to my son and he's like, wow. I said, what kind of car do you want, Luke? And he said, Tesla. And he's 14. I said, all right, well, 
do you think you're going to be able to get a Tesla sooner or faster or sooner or later if you work for a boss like this or if you work for yourself and start your own business? And uh, that got the wheels turning in him. He's getting starting, starting to get interested in cars now, right? And mm-hmm. so now he's starting to ask me, Jet, Dad, can I help you with real estate stuff? And <laughs> I've never, he's never had any interest in that before. And mm-hmm. he's a smart kid. I know he'll do fine with this. But I'm looking at this like, well, okay, I want my son to do real estate. Do I want him negotiating with sellers on these houses? And do I want to explain to him all of the stuff you got to do with, you know, negotiating and buying a house, you know, and flipping? There's so much more involved with that. I want to keep it as simple as possible. And land, I'm just thinking, I think land would be perfect for him, right? Now, there's still a lot of things you'd have to learn in land. So one of the first things I'm going to give him to do is start going through some of these courses that I've bought. I I've, I bought yours course, Seth. I bought Jack's, Jack Bosch's. I bought, I bought Mark Podolsky's, and I bought Land Academy. I've bought four different courses, and uh, they're all good. I'm not going to say which one is better or not because they're just all good. And I, and I tell people that all the time. If you're, if you're interested in something, buy as much education on that topic as you can because people are going to have different perspectives on things. Yeah, for sure. So what would you, what would you tell your 14-year-old son, Seth? I don't know if you have kids or not. Well, my son is 11 months old. Ah, so well, good for it's you. not quite there yet. But um, or your that, daughter. Is that a whole question or what would I tell them about what exactly? About no, so the question is, what would you tell your kids once they're start, you know, they're in their teens and they're starting to get interested in building their own business and, and getting into investing like you are? Would you encourage them? Would you push them towards land? Encourage them to land or would you – push them, direct them to somewhere else? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think it sort of depends on, you know, what their God-given talents and skills and strengths are. And for me, for my personality, land works really well. And just for the things that I enjoy and, you know, I, I don't really like risk. kind of scares me, honestly. I, I, I try to avoid that kind of thing as much as I can. I like certainty and I'm not somebody who loves to spend tons of time on the phone all day. So like all this negotiation and meeting people at properties and stuff like that. Like it just, it, you know, feels like it sucks the life out of me just thinking about it. So, Oh man, I totally relate. Yeah. So, I mean, land, just being able to do everything from home, not having to talk for all hours of the day to people that I don't know. And some of that has to do with the approach you're taking, but if he's anything like me and my daughter for that matter, then I, absolutely, I'd say go for it. But that, that's not to say there aren't things that uh, make more sense for different types of personalities. I, I think some people, if you if you love negotiation, if you love sales, that kind of thing, you know, land is not the only place you can, you can uh, enjoy yourself and have a rewarding career doing what you love. Well, and I think there are advantages with houses over land. Yeah, uh, there's sure. definitely some. Like, number one, write-offs. You have zero mm-hmm. depreciation Seriously. or write-offs on land. You don't have really much of an opportunity to improve the land, right? But you mm-hmm. can improve a house. So your potential for profit is bigger with uh, with with houses, I think. Go ahead. It, uh, I think that stuff is kind of relative. I mean, there, there are some uh, lots that I've definitely – I could have improved or subdivided or added utilities to or yeah, roads yeah. to. That's a good point. made potentially millions, you know, but it's just – that's not my area of expertise. That's not where I want to spend my time. So I had just chosen not to, but I think those opportunities, depending on the property are certainly there with certain properties and, uh, and the profit margins, it's kind of a similar thing. Like I, I know somebody who like almost like, (laughs) 
Like they just really sacrificed a ton of time, put a lot of money on the line, lots of risk on the line with a house flip they did recently. And they made about 20 grand on it when everything was said and done. Oh. And compare and contrast to that to like some of the better deals I've done where you could make 40 or 50 grand doing like very, very little, like really like probably less than 10 hours total on the deal. Yeah. It just kind of depends. I mean, I think if you're going after the small rinky dink lots, then yeah, those profit margins are not that big. But if you're intentionally targeting larger acreage and larger deals, it uh, could be the other way around. Yeah. Okay, good. So let me, let me move on here. I want to ask you some questions about sometimes you sell the land for cash. Sometimes you sell them with owner financing. Uh, you flip more for cash, you said earlier. Why is that? Well, for me, I mean, going back to the advantages of houses over land, I think one of the big advantages in terms of passive income, I mean, the cool thing with seller financing is that you can turn land into a passive source of income with, uh, you know, getting monthly payments on the deals you sell. However, inevitably, that land is going to pay off at some point. So it's like, it's not going to be there forever. Whereas with a rental property, it is going to be there for as long as you own that. So I kind of recognize that along with some of the tax uh, benefits as well. And so I really, my long-term goal is to, you know, put money into whether it be duplexes or apartment complexes or self-storage facilities. I love to get some of those, you know, things like that, that offer some of the things that land don't or land doesn't. So that's, uh, that's why I, you know, lately the past several years have been selling for pretty much only cash and not so much seller financing. Okay. So how many seller financing notes have you created? If you don't mind me asking with land. Yeah. Uh, it's been a couple dozen. Okay. What would you say approximately your default rate is on those land notes? Well, it's a, uh, any deal that I'm looking at, like from this point forward, starting probably earlier this year, I'm using a service called Cozy to do credit uh, credit checks on people, which is really easy and they pay for it. Prior to that, I wasn't doing credit checks because that was kind of how I was advised to do it. Right. Um, because, you know, on, on paper, uh, it isn't really a huge deal if somebody stops paying because you can just take the property back, resell it, make your money all over again. That's kind of like the simplistic way of explaining it. But unfortunately, it's also a huge pain in the neck a lot of times because, um, you know, if, if people stop paying and that happens quite a bit, like probably half the time, if you're not doing credit checks, depending on your luck, really, it's hmm. just annoying to have to uh, repossess a property, uh, go through all those steps even in the states that make it easy, and Michigan is one of those, it's still a hassle. And some states make it really stinking hard. Like you have to go to court to do it. And it's it's a long drawn out process, can cost you thousands. So it's just, uh, yeah, that's that's another part of the reason why I just kind of didn't want to deal with that stuff anymore. It was just really annoying to me. So um, that's interesting. But, you'll, you'll actually pull credit reports on the buyers of your notes. Yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really easy. And with... Uh, with Cozy, the way it works is it sends an email to that. It's set up for landlords and tenants, but you can use it for borrowers just as well. Yeah. But it sends the borrower an email and then they pay for it and they give their permission. So it actually doesn't impact their credit score because it's a, it's called a soft inquiry. Yeah. They're yeah. authorizing it. And uh, I also don't have to pay for it, but the report comes straight to me and then I can review it and just kind of find out 
you know, where they're coming from. I can also get a background check. So if they're like a known criminal or something, I can know that as well. Interesting. Uh, it's just a really handy service. And so I, w- I would imagine this would dramatically decrease your default rate if you did something like this. Well, it, it can. If, if you actually use that information to make your decision, you know, if somebody is, you know, I used to work in banking and understanding what credit reports are saying is actually kind of hard. <laughs> Cozy has really nice credit reports that are easier than most to read. But, you know, like, for example, if somebody has a few late payments, like that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a bad borrower. Um, sure. But if somebody has a long history of missing tons of stuff and having collection agencies going after them and, um, I mean, that's a pretty red, big red flag. And whatever their credit score ends up being, say if it's like low 600s, like that's kind of in the, eh, I don't know about this kind of territory. Um, it's not just about the number, but you have to understand what's behind the number. Like what is causing that number to be so low? Because sometimes it'll be like one issue. Like they've been perfect on everything except for this one thing. And that's just sort of sabotaging the number. And so that's why it's important just to understand what those reports are saying and how to dig into them. That's interesting. And then um, with the cool thing about, in our experience, we've, we've probably done 25 land flips and um, maybe 20, but uh, we've get, when we advertise them, we've sold them all for cash and we'll sell them within usually f- six weeks has been the longest because we weren't really marketing it heavy, but um, we get a lot of people that ask us, would you do consider owner financing? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I know people may be thinking, well, if you're, man, if you're going to do polar credit, you're going to get a lot fewer, in- a lot less interest, but you get so much interest to begin with, right? You, sh- you should be able to filter, you should be able to find some good people yeah. that have yeah, it's a, it just depends on the property. I think some areas land sells really fast, in some areas it doesn't. Like you have to really, you know, go above and beyond to make your listing look really good. Um, so I, I sort of understand that, but at the same time, it's like, would I rather hold on to this for a few more months and have to deal with all the hassles of repossessing the property or just do it right the first time and just wait for the right person? Because remember, I mean, most lots do not cost a lot to just hold on to. It's, it's a little annoying when you don't sell it as fast as you want and it can kind of hold things up. But um, I mean, as a long-term strategy, I think it makes more sense to just work with people who are going to do what they say they're going to do. And, uh, yeah, I think with some properties, there's definitely something to be said for that whole, you know, if somebody stops paying, I can repossess it and sell it all over again. And potentially a deal can be more profitable that way because you're making your money twice. Um, we just sort of have to weigh the consequences of what am I going to have to do legally to get this property back and actually have the right to resell it? Because, yeah. I mean, it, it may sound simple at first, you know, just on the surface, but Depending on the state you're in, I mean, and also, I mean, you have to have the right stuff in your original loan documentation or you can't even do it. So you also have to know what loan documentation to use, which varies by state. So it's like there's, there's a lot of little complexities involved once you start going down the seller financing route that, I mean, they're kind of a hassle to deal with. And you just have to understand, like, is it worth that hassle? Like, is it is it going to add that much more to my bottom line? Is the passive income that important to me? And if it is, then that's your answer. But some people just sort of do it willy-nilly without really thinking about what's involved with all this. And it's just something to be aware of. Yeah, that's really good. I've heard, um, I've been asking a lot of different people who do a lot of land, what are their default rates? And um, I'll have 
anywhere. I have people tell me on a bad in the, in the recession, it was 35% default. And mm-hmm. I've had other people tell me during the recession, it was more like 75% re- default. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the gentleman who told me 75% default, I was drilling him deeper and deeper about it. And these were really crappy lots that he should have never bought in the first yeah. place. So he bought these lots from another investor who had, so he actually, he bought the notes and they were all bad notes to begin with. Oh, I see. Do you understand? Yeah. So it's, uh, you just got to figure out what your tolerance for that is and yeah. see if you can handle it. Yeah. I think there's actually, that's an important thing to just be aware of. I, the defaults that I've had to deal with were usually on lots that I wouldn't say they were like crappy, but they, they weren't great. Like there weren't high end lots that like everybody wants And it. I think those kind of lots attract a certain type of buyer slash borrower as well. And in hindsight, like sitting down for the closing with some of these people, like I totally should have known it was going to be an issue just, just based on, you know, certain things I could have assumed really by the way they were presenting themselves and things they were saying, but I was just kind of, you know, naive, I guess. And okay. um, I've learned my, learned a lot of lessons through that. Okay. So I, man, I, this has gone, this time is flying by, flown by. <laughs> this has been very, very good, Seth. And I, just so everybody knows who's listening to me, I still love houses, right? I still do lease options, but I think it's important to think about diversifying, right? Now, I'm not a big proponent of like chasing every shiny object. And if land right now is a shiny object for you, then do, you know by all means, don't focus on that, right? I made most of all of my money with houses. That's what let me quit my job back in 2009. I was just flipping lease options. So, But if land has any interest to you at all, you got to check out Seth's website. And it's retipster.com, retipster.com. You've got a lot of really good articles on there. And Seth, you even do a real good job of reviewing other people's courses, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's part of the uh, – it's a huge perk to what I do through the blog is I get – Lots of opportunities to go through people's courses and products and services, and it's really cool. It's it's pretty time consuming though, but uh, but yeah, I've been able to learn a lot and see a lot of cool things through that. You still have your course available, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's set up as a membership website, and it's a separate website, retipster.club. And uh, yeah, it's essentially a twelve module course on how my land investing business works. And there's uh, you know tons of downloads, um, and there's monthly webinars that I do for only the members. Usually there's about, I don't know, 12 to 20 people that show up and we just have a live question and answer session. So if people are stuck on things, it's kind of their chance to get coaching from me if that's what they want. And there's a members only forum and, uh, you know, adding, adding new content and revising stuff as the business changes. So that's something that I'm able to do because it's all online like that. Yes. Very, very good. Cool. Um, well, thank you, Seth, for your time. Anything else you want to say you want to close up with? Yeah, not really. I, I just appreciate the chance to talk to you. And um, I know you're a, you're a well-known name in the industry. And it's just an honor to, to know you and to chat with you for a little bit. I appreciate the chance to, to talk. Well, that's humbling. I appreciate that. Hey, thank you, Seth. Again, guys, go to retipster.com, R-E-T-I-P-S-T-E-R.com, or go to our website and get the show notes, realestateinvestingmastery.com. And Seth is one of the good guys. I'm telling you, uh, you're going to go to his website. You're going to love his blog. You're going to like his videos. By the way, your latest post, you're holding up some silver squares. What are those? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's just kind of an idea I had watching a few other bloggers that I know of. Sometimes people do these giveaways where they just sort of like give stuff away for free. And yeah. people can enter their name in the bucket by you know, subscribing to their YouTube channel or signing up for their email list. It just kind of seemed like a fun thing to do around this time of year. It's, you know, around December when we're recording this. So, but anyway, that particular video is where I announced the winners of the giveaway. So I'm holding up uh, Amazon gift cards. Those are $300 gift cards to Amazon that I, as part of what I gave away in the, Those are gift in the cards. process. I was, uh, I'm thinking about doing the same thing for my podcast, oh, cool. but giving away an iPhone 10. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if that's nice. I don't know if that's crazy or not, but um, that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have mine. I love it. Cool. Hey, thanks a lot, Seth. I sure appreciate it. Hold on for one second. I'm going to end the recording, and I got another question for you. But I, I appreciate you. you being on the show, Seth. Thank you so much. You're very gracious. Thanks, Joe. 